Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series with James Jordan as he walks through the book of Romans, and here he's going to be in Romans chapter 8. If you are on the island of Oahu, we would like to invite you to our original course on a theology of hope with Peter Lightheart. That course is coming up on October 14th and 15th, and you can find a link to registration in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Romans chapter 8. From having a negative assessment of the Torah, of the law, because of the perversion of the Torah and the law in Judaism, to having a very positive view of the law in the Christian life. And so Romans kind of moves from the law as a problem to the law as a wonderful thing. And he has moved to telling us that we have been resurrected from death to life, and as a result we have a new relationship to the law. Now in Romans chapter 8 he's going to add one more dimension to that. It's not just that we are new, but it's also that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to give us power and strength to live the new Christian life. So now we can use the law to correct our own sins. We can use the law to bring the creation back to the way it's supposed to be because the Spirit strengthens and enables us to do it. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Romans 8. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for the Holy Scriptures and for their words to us. We ask that you guide our thoughts this morning and help us to understand better the ways that you have set up to enable us to be your sons and daughters. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. So he starts off here in Romans 8 and says, Therefore... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, the reason he starts there is because just the preceding verses talked about the law of God and about the sinfulness of man and how the contradiction in the Christian life means that we're constantly trying to do what's right and yet in our flesh there is this continual opposition that's causing us problems and we have this contradiction in ourselves and in a sense we're threatened. But he says that because the essence of who we are, our inner new person is actually raised to life again and is in Christ, and because of the work of Christ, we are not condemned. Verse 2 says, The law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, this we could read this one of two ways. We could say, well, there are two different laws here. There's, There's a principle of the Spirit of life which is good, and there is a principle of sin and death, which is bad. But that's not the correct way to read this. In Romans, the word nomos always refers to the Torah. And what he's saying is that the Old Testament law, God's law, can be used in, one, in two different ways. It can be a law of sin and death. The sin uses the law to kill us, and bring us into death and make us sin more, as we've been considering, because we rebel against God, or the law can be taken in the context of the spirit of life. That the spirit gives us life 
and uses the law to show us how to live so that we get more life. So it's the same law. It's the same God. We either hate God or we love God. And it's the same law. Sin takes the law and uses it to kill us and make us sin. The Spirit takes the law, gives us life, and enables us to obey the law and find more life. So we grow from life to life, so to speak. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, the old sinful condition of the world, the flesh does not mean your body. First and foremost, the flesh is the Adamic world. Adam is in the flesh. The resurrection is in the spirit. Look over at 1 Corinthians 15. This is how the word flesh is used, okay? Verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15, just read here a little bit. So is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable. It is raised an imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Your body, your, your resurrection, you are sown a natural body. It's raised a body that is governed by the Holy Spirit. Now, if there is a pre-fall natural body, then there must also be a spiritual body. In other words, history is always implied that there would come a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, life-giving Holy Spirit. However, the Holy Spirit world order is not first, but the natural world order, and then the spiritual world order. The first man has the quality of the earth, earthy, made of dust. The second man has the quality of heavenly character. As is the earthly Adam, so are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly Jesus Christ, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly Adam, Jesus Christ. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So flesh, earthy, Adamic, all that refers to the first world order, the old creation which has fallen in sin and is weak. And the spiritual resurrection creation is the new creation in the regeneration that we have. So what the law could not do here back in Romans 8, verse 3, the law could not do it because it was weak through the flesh. Through the sinful old creation made the law of no effect. The law couldn't work right. It could not bring about resurrection. It couldn't even show us really very well how to live because the flesh was constantly perverting it and causing us to rebel against it. The law could not save us, but God did it. He sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, the old condition, but according to the Spirit, the new resurrection world. Okay, how did God save us? He sent Jesus in the likeness of flesh of sin. That doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't a true human being. It means that Jesus was born of the human race. We believe in the virgin birth. 
And Jesus takes up the whole previous Adamic history because God did not make Jesus out of dust and start over again. His birth was virginal, and so in that sense, it's a new start. But it's also a birth out of the old Adamic race, and so it's not a complete new start. Jesus is born into the old Adamic race. He doesn't have a sin nature. Paul tells us that other places. So Paul is careful here to say likeness of sinful flesh. He is born in a body that has lost the Adamic glory, that is subject to the same infirmities we are, and more to the point, he is born in the sinful flesh world under the angelic government, and he is an offering for sin, a sin offering. And remember what the sin offering does. It opens a ladder from heaven to God. The sin offering, unlike the other offerings, the blood is taken and put on the horns of the altar and then on the base of the altar. It's put on the horns of the inner altar and the base of the outer altar. It's put on the mercy seat and then way out of the base of the outer altar. In that order. So blood opens a ladder from heaven to God so God can reach down to man. And then the ascension offering comes afterwards. The smoke goes back up to God. We ascend back up to God. Jesus is sent as a sin offering, as a mercy seat. And his blood is put here and here and opens a ladder from heaven to earth. And what comes down that ladder from heaven to earth? Once Jesus opens this ladder from heaven down to earth, what comes down that ladder? Fire. What fire? The Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down that ladder and starts the fire on the altar. What's the altar? Where does the Holy Spirit start the fire on Pentecost? On their heads. On their heads. Where are the altars? Okay. <whistles> Tongues of fire up here. Flaming swords. Tongues of fire. We have the flaming sword. We got the tongues of fire. Like that, see? Now, we're the altar. We're the angels. The Spirit comes down that ladder. So Jesus is a sin offering. The blood goes all the way up to the mercy seat. The blood comes all the way down to the base of the altar, the bottom of the world. The entire world is covered in blood, Jesus' blood. And that brings the Spirit down to start the fire on the altar. This time the altar is us. And now we go back up to Him, leads back up to Him. By sending Jesus as a sacrifice for sin, as an offering for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh. So He destroys the flesh and leaves the Spirit in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the requirement of the law is going to be filled in us. We're not under the works of the law, but we're going to fulfill the requirement of the law. It looks very similar, doesn't it? But Paul has set these words up as technical expressions. Works of the law has to do with the Israelite perversion of the law in pride. But the requirement of the law is what the law says to do. And the Spirit's going to enable us to do it. The Spirit will enable us to beat down the enemy of the flesh inside of us. That will be true of us when we do not walk according to the flesh, when we don't walk in the old condition of the world, just kind of moving around, but when we walk in the Spirit. When we think about, you know, constantly day by day that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're resurrected, these things are true, God has said them, whether it feels like it or not, it's true. 
You may not feel very resurrected this morning, but you are. We are new every day. The Holy Spirit, God, is making us new. He's made us new, and now we can count on that and walk according to it. Then he sets some contrasts up here. For those who were according to the flesh, according to the old way, set their minds on the things of the flesh. They think about the old way, the old fallen way in Adam. They think about pornography and other bad things, okay? But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what does the Spirit produce? What are the things of the Spirit? Well, first of all, it's the Bible. Second of all, it's whatever is true and good and beautiful, according to Philippians. The Spirit is the Spirit of artistic expression. Remember, the Word is content and the Spirit is glory. So the arts, in their best form, are things of the Spirit, beautiful things, meaningful things. Even if art is ugly, to make a point, that's meaningful. The things of the Spirit are the things that have to do with the kingdom of God. And in all of its dimensions, whereas the flesh is the things that are depraved. Verse 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. When you think about, when you set your mind on the old things, the fallen things of the world, it leads to death. It comes from death, and it leads to death. It comes out of your death nature, and it leads to more death. But the mind that is set on the spiritual things, the things that the Holy Spirit does, comes from the new life in your heart and leads to more life. It comes from the peace we have with God and leads to more peace. Verse 7, because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not able to do so. Paul is hard to read at the beginning of Romans, but now it's getting to where we see what he's talking about. I've had to tell you this all along so that you could follow it. The law is a good thing, but the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God. The flesh rebels against the law of God. One form of rebellion against the law of God is actually to say, I love the law, but pervert its meaning. And that's what the Jews were doing. They perverted the meaning of the law into a nationalistic badge that made them better than other people. Instead of saying the law is given to help us be servants of other people. And so, in many different ways, the flesh is hostile to the law. It rebels against it, or in a more sophisticated form, it affirms the law, but then perverts its meaning. And in all of these ways, the law of works, the works of the law... Do not please God. He says that the mind is not able to subject itself to the law of God, the fleshly mind. This refers to predestination here. We're not able to subject ourselves to the law of God the proper way because our rebellion goes so deep that only God can change our hearts. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. doesn't say those who are in the flesh, those who are in the Adamic world, those who are living in the sphere of Adam, both in their personal lives and in their whole corporate matrix of life, those who are in the flesh don't want to please God. Those who are in the flesh don't feel like pleasing God. He says they're not able to please God. 
There's nothing they can do to please God because they don't want to please God. Every time they learn something new about God, it's just something new to hate. Their whole orientation is wrong, and so God has to sovereignly change our hearts. But in verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We've been taken out of the old history and put into a new history. We've been taken out of the old world and put into a new world. We've been taken out of Adam and put in Christ. We have been taken out from under the angelic spirits, and we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've moved out of the archaic religion, where life is structured by ritual, life is structured by stars, life is structured by tradition, life is structured by law and totems, sacred days, holy places, holy times, holy foods, taboo foods, taboo days, all the structures of the archaic world, whether it's the true archaic religion of the Old Testament or all the counterfeit archaic religions in paganism, were taken out of that world where we are completely structured and bound by sacred time, sacred space, sacred person, taboo time, all that other stuff with angels, and were put into the new world where we are in charge, okay? The new human world with the Holy Spirit governing us where we're no longer under archaic religion, but in true humanity restored by the Spirit. Verse 9, you are not in the flesh, in that old world, but in the new world of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, Paul is always throwing his qualification in. Okay, The law is fulfilled in us if we don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, he's saying, don't just think because you got baptized and came into the church one day that that automatically makes you a Christian, permanently. You've got to renew your baptism every day by faith. He doesn't want you to fall back into the sin of the Jews, which was, we got the law, we got circumcision, we're in. Doesn't matter what we do. He doesn't want you to think that way, okay? So he's, he always says, you're in if you persevere. You're in if you maintain faith day by day. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Anointed One, the same Spirit who anointed Jesus now anoints us so that we become Christ's. We become Anointed One. The word Christ is the word chrism. It's the word anointing. It's the word Mashiach in Hebrew, which means oil coming on you. Jesus is the one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And at his baptism, he became the Messiah. Up till that time, he was the Son of God and the Son of Man, and he was perfect, and he never sinned, and he never did anything wrong. But when the Spirit came on him at his baptism, he was anointed to become the Messiah. He became the anointed official one. Well, now the Spirit comes on us, and guess what? We're all messiahs. We're all anointed ones. We're all Christ's, the small c. So my name is Jim Christ. Does that sound radical? Well, we don't want to press it too far, but I mean, that's the whole point here. Is that the same spirit who came on Christ and made him an anointed one comes on you and me and makes us anointed ones. That happened at Pentecost. Happens at your baptism. That's what your baptism means. So, verse 10 says, if the anointed one, Jesus, is in you, even if the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? 
It means that in a sense, we're already in the resurrection because this body is dead and the old body politic of the world is dead, but the Holy Spirit has already given us resurrection on the inside. Eventually, that's going to happen on the outside, but it's already happened here. And so we have to live that way. We have to say, look, this body is eventually going to fall away. Now, this body is not the enemy. Christianity is a carnal religion that affirms the goodness of the flesh and the goodness of creation. All pagan religions want to get away from the world. That's why they burn the bodies of their dead, to set the spirit free and to say the body is trash. We don't do that. We treat the body with respect even after a person dies. But we do have to realize that the old body, the Adamic body, is dead and waits for a resurrection. But in our insides, we've already been given that resurrection. And so now we can move out. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of you, he who raised the anointed Savior from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So the fact that we're raised on the inside, and how do you know you've been raised up on the inside? Because you exalt in the kingdom of God. Yahoo! You exalt. All right, everybody exalt. Yahoo! All right. Yeah, see there? Good. Wake up. We exalt, okay? And we rejoice at Jesus, at the good things. We've been resurrected on the inside, and that's proof that we will eventually be resurrected on the outside. Okay. Verses 12 to 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It says we don't have to live in the old world anymore. We don't have to live according to the old patterns anymore. We don't have to live according to our old biography anymore. Were you abused as a child? Did bad things happen to you? Do you have a biography that's full of bad things? And Have you done bad things? Did you break God's law? Well, that old biography is gone. You don't have to live with that old biography. It doesn't have to govern your life. You're given a new biography. Your position in Christ and his life is now your life. Are you part of a nation with a bunch of traditions that are bad? Well, you don't have to live with that old national tradition anymore. You're given a new history because, as he's going to say in a minute, well, tonight, you're put in the olive tree and you have a new history. Israel is your history now because we're the true Israelites. You don't have to live according to the old biography. You don't have to live according to the old history. You don't have to live according to the old ways. You can have the Spirit, and by the Spirit you can put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit gives us the strength to kill all the aspects of our lives that are causing us trouble. That's called mortification of sin. We're resurrected. Now we use the law to beat up all the parts of our lives that are bad. And we use the Bible, the whole law, to change our society, change the world, when and as God gives us the ability to do so. The Spirit lets us put to death the deeds of the body. So what do you do about the Aztecs? Every day, the Aztecs get a whole bunch of teenage kids, and they take them up on top of the pyramid, and they reach inside their bodies and rip out their cactus hearts and offer them to the divine hummingbird. In other words, they pull their hearts out and offer them to the sun. Well, that has to stop. <laughs> and 
when the Spanish came over here, they weren't the best people who ever lived, but they knew that was bad, and they put a stop to it. They put to death the deeds of the flesh. You put a stop to enslaving all the other tribes round about and just raising their children up as sacrifices. You put a stop to that. That's why all those other Indian tribes joined up with Cortez, because they wanted to help him overthrow the Aztecs. Well, that has to stop. And the Spirit of God is given to bring a halt to that kind of thing, to snap the archaic religions, to crush the Canaanitic civilizations. And from time to time, that happens. It happens in different ways. Example of Cortez, it happens through military action. Sometimes it happens through conversion. But it's got to stop. Okay, the old world has to be put to death, and the new world has to come, generation by generation. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now he starts to add it further. We're sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Remember, in the background of all of this is always the Jew-Gentile question. That's the theme in Romans. The overarching theme in Romans is the Jew-Gentile question. Everybody who's led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The Israelites knew that they were sons of God because when God negotiated with Pharaoh, he went to Pharaoh and he said, Israel is my firstborn, let my son go. So the Israelites said, we're the sons of God, and you're not. Well, no, that's not right. All those Gentile God-fearers were sons of Abraham, therefore sons of God. And Paul says it again here, anybody led by the Spirit of God is the Son of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now these are both references to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was working in the world, and he worked to help the people become slaves under the law and fear the punishments of the law, because they were supposed to be under the law, under the angels. And that's what the Spirit helped them do. But now, he says, the fullness of time has come. Jesus has fulfilled everything Adam did. And we not only have life, we have rule. We not only get bread, we get wine. We not only get the tree of life, we get the tree of knowledge. We're not only priests, we're kings. That's the new world. That's the world Adam didn't get to because of his sin, but that's the world Jesus gets to because of his faithfulness. It's the resurrection world. And now when the Spirit comes, the Spirit gives us great power as opposed to the Old Testament. It's a spirit of freedom as sons, and now we're no longer children's sons who are no different from a slave, as it says in Galatians. We're mature sons who now have the sword of the Spirit to go forth and exercise dominion. You guys like dominion, right? This is a dominion city around here, right? Well, when we were children, we couldn't exercise much dominion. You know, we were under tutors and governors in the Old Testament. But now, now we're sons, and sons are in charge, okay? We're put up on the throne right next to the Father, and we are junior kings next to him, next to Jesus. And so, the spirit of adoption, we cry out, Abba, Father. And we really have a relationship with God the Father that is new and much more glorious than anything in the old covenant times. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The children are in charge. That's talking about dominion. 
If children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We inherit all the stuff that God has. Now, usually when you inherit something, it's because somebody died and they leave it to you. But the thing about God is God doesn't have to die. We inherit and he still has it all too (laughs) because he's the fountain of being. But at any rate, we inherit all this stuff from God without diminishing anything from God. What do we inherit? We inherit all of God's rule and authority. It's dominion again. The heirs are in charge. If your parents don't have anything, you don't inherit anything. If they have a little bit, you inherit a little bit. But if you inherit from God, how much do you inherit? A whole lot of stuff, right? Kind of like an infinite amount of stuff. Okay, that's how much we've inherited. We're talking dominion, you're talking inheritance. Fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, everything that Jesus inherits, we inherit. We are co-heirs. Now, he says, that's only true if we suffer with him. We will be co-heirs if we co-suffer in order that we may be co-glorified. That's the way this actually reads. You want to inherit, you're going to have to go through some suffering. Sorry, but that's true. And really, it's wonderful because it's a privilege to join in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross because he knew that his suffering would lead to his vindication. And our suffering leads to vindication. We better talk about this just a little bit and about how it works. The book of Job shows you how this works. Job comes under all of this tribulation. His kids are killed. All of his cattle is taken away. His fields are burned. Everything is bad for Job. And then he gets sick and the devil's giving him all this hard time. And his friends come to him and they say, well, look, Job, all this stuff is happening to you because, you, <laughs> because you're a sinner. And Job says, look, I know I'm a sinner, but the covenant is real. And I haven't done the specific kinds of things that would lead to this. I'm suffering for some other reason. I'm not suffering because of anything I've done. And his friends say, that can't be true, Job. You've got to be guilty. And Job says, I'm not guilty. And this goes on, you know, for 30 wearying chapters. (laughs) And finally, God comes along and says, look, Job, I'm in charge and I can do anything I want. And Job says, yeah, you're right. And God says, as a matter of fact, you're not guilty. And your friends are going to have to apologize to you. Now, why are his friends so anxious to get him to admit that he's guilty? Yeah, they can't stand the contradiction to their experience. It doesn't seem to make sense. Now, the same thing happens with Jesus, except that we're the ones who make him suffer. You put an innocent person to death, and sooner or later, you can't stand it. So you've got to do one or two things. You've got to keep saying he was guilty, 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 he was guilty. In spite of appearances, or else you have to break and say, nope, he was innocent. He was innocent and we did wrong. And now you're in a psychological and moral bind. Now that's what happens with Jesus. They put him to death. And you read the book of Acts. And the apostles are going around saying, you put him to death and he was innocent. You put him to death and he was innocent. And what do the Jews do? Well, they haul him in and say, you're trying to bring this man's blood down on us. Shut up. We don't want to hear about that. You're making people feel guilty. Now they feel guilty. They're crying out for relief. He was guilty. Jesus was guilty. The apostles say, no, he wasn't. Everybody knows he wasn't guilty. You know full well he wasn't guilty. 
And there's this big tension that results. As the government keeps trying to say, they were guilty, they were guilty, they were guilty. And as a matter of fact, they weren't. And now their consciences come to life and start to bug them. Now when they put us to death, when they make us suffer, the same thing happens. And that's why the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because there is a mechanism here whereby when we bring the gospel out, it makes them mad. When we take God's word to them, it makes them mad because people hate God. So what do they do when they get mad because they hate God? They kill us. The same reason Cain killed Abel. It says, Abel spoke to Cain in the field. We don't know what Abel said. But it must have been something connected with God's word because Cain got mad and killed him. When we go out and take the word of God, people get mad and kill us. But they know we're innocent. And so they can't live with it. And that cracks open their frozen consciousness. The gospel has this two-edged procedure. Here are all these people living their habitual lives. They're not ready to change. They're just going to go on this way forever. We come in with the gospel and it makes them mad. They kill us. And now their conscience can't stand it. And their life is ruined. And that psychologically cracks open any society. It cracks open the frozen consciousness of the sinful person. Bound under the law, bound under traditions and archaic forms, or humanist forms, it cracks it open, and then they have to deal with it. And then chaos comes into the society. And brother is set against brother, and father against son. That's the red horse that follows the white horse. The gospel comes, and then there is conflict, as some people convert and others don't convert, But things fall apart. In the famous novel by Achebe, the gospel comes and things fall apart. And they have to come back together again in the spirit. But the flesh world falls apart. That's why Christian suffering is an integral part of the coming of the kingdom of God. We don't suffer in an amillennial sense. We suffer because we're right and the world hates us. We suffer in a postmillennial sense. Because when we suffer, it shakes up the world and the world has to change. You can see a slight analogy to this with this Waco and Ruby Ridge thing in our society. Everybody knows David Koresh was a filthy, degenerate man who should have been arrested and put to death long ago. But what the government did was wrong. Now they've tried to cover it up and say we were right, but everybody knows it's wrong. And the pressure is mounting up. And we certainly don't agree with white separatism of the Weaver family. But does that justify the government going in and murdering that whole family? No, it doesn't. And they've tried to cover it up, but now it's coming out. And it is shattering the administration. Because the more they try to cover it up, the more people know what went on, and it's tearing things up. Well, that's just a small example of what happens when the most righteous person who ever lived was put to death. They knew he was righteous, and they couldn't stand it afterwards, and it broke up the entire tradition of Israel. And in little ways, that happens when we suffer, when they make us suffer. And so, I'm sorry to say it, but Jesus didn't die and suffer so that you won't have to. Jesus suffered and died so that you would be enabled to. (laughs) Isn't that good news? Well, as a matter of fact... We all know that we're going to suffer, okay? It's just a fact. 
And so since it's a fact that we're going to suffer from time to time, it's nice to know that there's a reason for it. And it's nice to know that Jesus suffered so that we would be able to, and it doesn't just happen to us willy-nilly. When bad things happen to you, they don't come out of the blue. They are part of your participation and extension of the suffering of Christ. And unknown to you, it is part of God's plan to crack up the old world and tear it down and shatter it so that the world can come together anew in the spirit. So this suffering is important. And so let's read it again, verse 17. If we are co-heirs with Christ, if we're going to inherit everything that Christ inherits, that's because we're going to suffer the same way he did in order that we may be glorified the same way he is. We're going to participate in the suffering and in the glory because that's what we inherit from Christ. Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. In other words, you're not going to get as much glory as you got suffering. You're going to get so much more glory than suffering that it's not going to make any difference. I'll tell you this too. 25 octillion years from now, the 70 years that you suffered in this world isn't going to seem like very long. I mean, it's only 70 or 80 years. I mean, if you were going through what Job went through with boils all over his body and continuous pain for 70 years, it's over. And then it's going to be billions and billions of years without it. That is a perspective to bear in mind. So no matter how much we suffer, it's nothing compared to the zillions and zillions of infinity of years that we will have of glory and we will move from glory to glory. It'll be getting better every day. Verse 19 starts to talk about the creation. We've been talking about Adam and Christ. And now he extends the Adam analogy and reminds us that Adam was tied into the world. Humanity is the creation made self-conscious. Humanity is the creation face to face with God. And so the whole creation is tied to us because we're made of dirt. All you people are made of dirt. And so you are the self-conscious expression of the creation itself. And so when we fell, the creation came into disorder. And when we're redeemed, the creation is restored. So now he talks about that. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The more we are revealed, the more creation shapes up. Finally, when we are fully revealed in the resurrection, the creation itself will be transfigured. And everything you were ever covenantally connected to in this world is going to go with you into the new creation. That's how I understand it. Did you have a dog or a cat when you were little that died? Well, if you loved it, if you were covenantally connected to it, it's going to be there in the new world too. Because everything connected to us is going to be resurrected with us. I don't know about animals that had no connection to people, but I firmly believe, well, I mean, I'm not going to burn for this, but I'm 94.6% convinced that everything in the creation that we were connected to, that we loved, is going to be pulled with us into the resurrection. So I think your dog is going to be there. I wouldn't worry about it. Feel better now? I mean, I'm the theologian here, and I'm telling you, don't worry about your dog. People always want to know this stuff. And the creation is going to be saved. And progressively in history, as we're revealed, I mean, Isaiah says that the animals will become tame. 
It's possible that that's just a symbol of the various wild nations around Israel. It could be that. And I'm sure it is that to some extent, but I'm not sure I want to stop it there. Because God says in Deuteronomy, I will take the wild animals out of your land. I will cause all your animals to have happy lives. And your trees will blossom, and it will rain the right time, and then they all take away earthquakes and floods. Well, it seems like, you know, the more the world becomes Christian, the less disease there's going to be. Not just because of science, but because the world is going to be kind of shaping up, and the curse is going to gradually be lifted to some extent. The fullness of that will come in the resurrection. Verse 20 says, The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The creation is going to participate in our freedom and glory in this life and in the world to come. Adam dragged it down. Jesus drags it up. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pangs of childbirth together until now. Now, I think we have to take that in the simplest sense. The curse on the creation ended in the first century in some sense. And there is some sense in which the world is now potentially able to shape up. It hasn't because we haven't shaped up enough. We keep walking by the flesh instead of by the spirit. And the gospel has not yet gone out over the world and hasn't yet permeated it. And we've got a ways to go. But progressively now... The creation has given birth to Jesus, and that groaning and suffering means that the creation can shape up now. now. This groaning business is the theme of the next several verses. The creation groans and suffers up until now, and in a sense continues to do so, waiting for us to shape up. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of the body. So we're groaning and waiting for the resurrection. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? In other words, we haven't yet gotten there, so we're looking forward to it. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So we're waiting for the consummation of all things. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for, as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit groans in us. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, what's he saying? He says part of the tension of the Christian life is that we've already been resurrected on the inside, but we haven't been resurrected on the outside. The kingdom has come in some sense. The kingdom is still coming in history. There are good times that could come ahead if we are faithful. The fullness of the kingdom comes in a resurrection. And a person who is sensitive to God is frustrated by this. Remember we talked about how frustration leads to things in the Christian life? We exult in our tribulation, in our frustrations, because frustrations bring about patience. Patience brings about the gyroscopic spin of character and stability in our lives, and that leads to hope. And all of this happens because the Holy Spirit pours out love in us. All this frustration is groaning. The creation is groaning and frustrated because it wants to fulfill itself. We're groaning and frustrating because we want to live in a theocracy where Christ is king. And we want to have our own life shaped up. 
And the Spirit is helping us groan because the Spirit is the divine matchmaker who wants to bring us to Jesus. The Spirit is the one who sets up these covenant strings. The Spirit is the rubber band, the bungee cord between us and Jesus. And He wants to snap us up close to Christ. So He's groaning, uh, trying to bring us to Christ. And the world is groaning, trying to come to Christ. Our problem as Reformed Christians is that we understand too much of the Bible. We know too much theology. If we were ignorant, like most evangelicals, we wouldn't worry a whole lot. Because they don't ever think the world is going to be converted. But we know the world is going to be converted, so there's a whole lot more frustration for us than there is for them. We expect the kingdom to be a whole lot better than they expect it to be. And so, the more you see about the kingdom, the more frustrated you get, and the more you groan. Half the people leave your church. <sighs> now, if you were an amillennialist, you'd say, oh, well, the Lord has blown off the scum. But as a post-millennialist, you say, well, half of these people were probably good people who just got out of sorts and didn't understand. And, oh, oh I'm tearing my hair. I'm leaving the ministry. I quit. I'm going to go pump gas for a living. I can't stand this anymore. Ever feel that way? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I did. I left the ministry. Well, that's a little humor there, but that's a fact. The more you know about the kingdom, the more you groan because it's taken so long to get here. But you can't jump the gun. We can't take up swords and glocks and uzis to try to bring in the kingdom. We just have to keep preaching. But the world is groaning, and that's good to know. That grass out there and those trees, they're on our side. And all those dogs and cats and tigers... You know, tigers would like to be friendly. Tigers would like to cuddle up next to you at night. They're groaning, waiting for the chance to do that. But as it is, God has got them out there punishing us by eating us. Okay? <laughs> They're still subjected to futility. God says to the tigers, I want you to eat people. Punish them. And tiger says, well, I'd rather be their friend. God says, I know, but for right now, you've got to eat them. So that's, that's what's happening. Alligators, you know? Alligators the same way. Roaches. Yeah, God says you're going to have to invade the kitchen and get into everything. And roaches say, I don't want to do that. And God says, well, you've got to do it. And roaches say, how long are we going to have to do this and have ladies stomping on us and crushing us? How long are we going to have to flee from raid? We want to be the friends of man. The whole creation wants to be our friend, and they can't be our friend. Because we're not there yet. We're groaning, but it's good to know that the creation groans with us, and it's good to know that the Holy Spirit groans with us because He can groan better than we can. He knows exactly what to groan about. Now, personally, I groan because I'd like to get $100,000 a year. But that's probably not the kind of thing I ought to groan about. But the Spirit knows what to groan about. He knows what to yearn for, and He's doing it. So that's good. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.